You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What's more important, the picture or the frame? The answer seems obvious. It's the picture, of course. But I've discovered that the secrets to success and happiness are rarely found in the obvious. A story presents a picture. And that picture changes dramatically every time you change the frame. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audio books. You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest is a man who learned to change the frame on a very disturbing picture. When he did that, he found the rich, empowering picture that led him to his fulfilling career as a lawyer, an author, and a mentor to entrepreneurs and business leaders in every size company and in diverse industries. He helps people embrace innovation and reach new levels of success. He's written a book called Fire, Aim, Ready Management, the start-at-the-end approach to crushing competition, crafting culture, and cementing relationships. I am excited and honored to introduce Elliot Wagenheim to the show. Elliot, 
Welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Hey, man, listen, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Cool. And do you, do you come from a large family, Elliot? No, it's a pretty small family. Uh, just my, uh, my sister's my only sibling. We have cousins, but just one on each side. So it's, um, it's pretty small. I've often envied people who have those large family reunions. Why is that? Because it just seems like so much fun. You know, you've got all of these people who know who you are and where you came from. And, you know, there's always a little bit of drama going on. And if you're not directly involved in it, it seems like it would be hysterical. Yeah, but if you're directly involved in it. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are lessons to be learned there as well. But, uh, but yeah, I get your point. You know, I'm from, a, I'm an only child myself. And um, I'm happy about that. But that, that's an interesting insight, I mean, interesting thought that, that you sometimes envy being uh, uh, people with large families. Now, who, who was your greatest influence on you when you were a kid? You know, I, I was very, very close to both of my parents. And for their generation, they were kind of role reversed because my mother, if she had her choice, she would have been president of General Motors. And my <laughs> father, if he had his choice he would have stayed home and taken care of the kids, but that's not what that generation did. So my mother, if you in, encapsulate her teachings, at least professionally, it would be pick your issues, then smile and go for the jugular. My father, a very kind soul, his all he wanted for me was to be a gentleman. He wanted people to know me as a gentleman. And so it was those two, the combination of, of those two that really uh, built who I am. That's fascinating. What, what, what did your father do? My father was a lawyer. He was a lawyer as well. And he yeah. now he didn't push you to become a lawyer. No, he didn't. Uh, it was kind of accidental. It was just law happens to be where my limited abilities and my interests intersect. Um, but actually, in growing up, um, when I was in first year of law school um, at 22, my mother was in second year of law school and my sister was in third year of law school and we were at the same school. Wow. So both your parents are lawyers? Yes, both of my parents are lawyers. Are your parents still alive? My mother is. She's retired, but uh, she's still alive. My dad passed away in 2007, so it's been about 10 years now. Wow. What, what kind of law did your mom practice? My mom, uh, she practiced some family law, uh, divorce, adoptions, that sort of thing. My dad was more of what he would call a country doctor version to a lawyer. He had his own practice in a small rural town. Um, and he basically took whatever came in the door. It could have been a personal injury. It could have been an adoption. It could have been a guardianship. It could have been a will. It could have been a divorce, um, a small criminal, you know, nothing huge, nothing that makes headlines, but small criminal traffic. That's just what he did. Uh, but my mom worked for large firms uh, in Baltimore. Wow. Now, let me ask you, when you were a kid, did you have a dream at some point about becoming something else? No, when I would, well, here's the thing. I grew up in an all Jewish neighborhood in Northwest Baltimore. 
And that is to say that the public schools closed for the Jewish holidays and that I did not knowingly meet my first non-Jewish person until I was in fifth grade. Um, and I was stunned. I remember who it was. I was stunned that he was not Jewish because we had been friends. I just, it didn't even, it wasn't even something I conceived of that there was a non-Jewish person in one of my classes. Um, and so I mentioned that by way of background because this was well before the internet or anything like that. And I only knew that there were four professions, really. You know, there was doctor, there was lawyer, there was accountant, and there was rabbi. Wow. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not particularly spiritual. I don't have a math science aptitude. And I didn't really want to be an accountant. So that kind of left lawyer. Um, <laughs> and so here I am. Wow, that's fascinating. That's one of the best stories I've ever heard, man. That's really good. And uh, so kind of to describe your childhood. I mean, you said that it sounds like it was a bit of a um, sheltered in, in a sense. I, You know, I think that, that people today would call it sheltered almost by default because we know so much more about the world, uh, not only from the Internet, but and not only from a 24-hour news cycle, but the fact that you and I have met here in uh, Canada, I'm in the United States, and we're having a conversation without it being a big production. You know, when, when I was growing up, if I wanted to speak to somebody in Canada, first of all, I better not dial that number without my parents' permission because that's going to be an expensive call. Um, but then just the mechanics of figuring out, do we have a time that's convenient for you? Because we can't have email and a time that's convenient for me, and where are we going to be, and and uh, what if you miss my call? You won't know that I called because there's no uh, missed call notification on your phone, and you're not carrying your phone with you. So I think that we were all geographically insular uh, to a large extent, and I certainly was. Um, I think that my children today are growing up much more aware of the possibilities of the universe both what divides us and makes us unique and, and what um, where, where we all have common ground. Um, I think it's a fascinating time to be alive and it's fascinating to watch my kids go through it. But compared to them, yeah, boy, I was sheltered. Boy, you know, I love the perspective that you, you're giving me on today's world because it's true. It's just that most of us take it for granted, including myself, so I never really thought of it like that once you put it into that context it's quite quite fascinating so you you when you were a kid you experienced a moment when you were 12 years old that was a defining moment for you can yeah, you I, can you tell us about that yeah and and you kind of set the stage a little bit because i grew up in a middle class neighborhood um nothing much ever happened there you know we had milk delivered we had um uh, you know, birthday parties at bowling alleys and, and in little amusement parks and everybody knew everybody and you played outside until the sun went down and, and you heard your mother calling you. We walked to school. Um, it was really very idyllic. And so, um, so contrast that with the fact that when I was 12 years old, I was stabbed in a knife fight. And to say that, especially to people who know me or, or know where I came from, it's just an astounding fact. And to call it a knife fight, to be fair, is a little bit of a misnomer because I didn't see the knife. 
I never saw it. And um, I, I didn't expect it, certainly. But I was in a fight with a, a classmate after school. And um, he stabbed me twice, once through the left shoulder to the lung, and one stab went um, up from the left ab abdomen through my spleen. And um, it, was, it, it was something so astonishingly stupid to be stabbed um, by somebody because you happened to ask his crush out to the seventh grade dance. You know, something as innocuous as that. But my parents both worked outside of the home. And by the time they got to the hospital where I'd been taken, the first person to meet them at the hospital was a police officer who identified himself as having been from homicide. I had already been in shock. I was already in surgery. And I spent weeks in intensive care. And then at home, um, it was going to be well over a month before I could sit up and eat solid food, let alone contemplate going to school. And so this was, you would think that this was the defining moment, that that was something that could be the worst thing that would ever happen to you, certainly as a 12-year-old with my upbringing. But it's not. I'll tell you what the worst thing was. You see, I, I wasn't a jock growing up. I was on teams, I could play sports, but I really wasn't you know, the award-winning athlete, captain of the football team, that sort of thing. And I, I had friends, but I wasn't one of the popular kids. I just had my friends. And I wasn't a band guy. I couldn't sing. But I was smart. That's how I self-identified. I was a smart kid. I was in the highest classes, what they today would call gifted and talented. That's how I thought of myself. But when I came home, and the doctors in consultation with the teachers and my parents and the administrators, well, they came to the conclusion that because of the rehabilitation time and the amount of time I would miss from school, I would have to be held back. And I, I have to tell you, that, that was more devastating than the knife. The fact that I would be held back went to the heart of who I was, to everything that I thought about myself. And I'll tell you, I would have been held back too, had it not been for two people. And this comes to the frame, this comes to the defining moment. The first was a kid named David Kurlander. David Kurlander was a friend of mine, but I wouldn't have called him my best friend. And to be honest, he probably wouldn't have called me his. But if there were a group of six to eight people together playing Risk or playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it was, we'd, be, we'd both be in that, in that same room. Well, David Kurlander, for reasons still unknown to me, decided every day, he started in the afternoon, he went around to all of my teachers and he collected their lesson plans and my homework. And he took it and he rode his bike to my house and he dropped it off. And it started making a pile on the desk opposite my bed, and I couldn't even walk to my desk by that point. But then, gradually, when I could start eating again, and I could walk on my own down the hall, and I could walk to my desk and sit up for more than 10 minutes straight, I would start doing that all. And every day, he came by my house in the morning on his bike. He picked up that homework, and he dropped it off to each of my teachers. 
In the afternoon, he would drop off. In the morning, he would pick up. Every single day. Wow. Now, you you might think that um, he would naturally do this, but think about our own lives today. You know, we have social media now, and now if you talk about something difficult that's befallen you, maybe your friends on Facebook would send you virtual hugs or uh, thumbs up or get well. But to give of yourself like that, well, that's one of the reasons that I didn't have to repeat. There was a second reason, and it plays into the first. There was certain things in my school that I couldn't do just by homework that David Kurlander picked up and dropped off. And so, once again, when I got strong enough, I looked out the window one day and I saw this old, beat-up Volkswagen. And out of the Volkswagen stepped my science teacher. Now, truth be told, I didn't like him very much. He didn't seem to have a sense of humor. He took science way too seriously for my seventh-year-old liking, or seventh-grade liking. Um, but he came up with this old case, and in that case was a little gas cylinder, and then flasks and beakers and minerals and what I thought of as potions. And he would do the science grade labs with me in the powder room right next to my kitchen. Side by side, we would just do the labs. His name was Mr. Sanders, and to this day I still don't know his first name. He didn't come because I was his favorite student. I probably was far from it. I wasn't disrespectful that I recall. But you have a sense when people like you and when people don't. And he probably had a sense that science wasn't my favorite and he wasn't my favorite. He didn't come because of me. Well, more accurately, I was secondary. The reason he came was because that's who he was. To many people, teaching or, or accounting or whatever they happened to be doing is a job. But for him, teaching was a calling. He came because he could not come. He came because a student, whether he liked him or not, needed him to come. From David Kurlander, I learned the combination of empathy and compassion. A lot of people think they're the same thing, but they're not. Empathy is that ability to understand what somebody else is feeling. You might pass a homeless person on the street and actually understand and feel the fact that they're cold or they're lonely or they're scared. But compassion, compassion is what makes you walk toward them and talk to them with respect or give them a cup of coffee or a cup of soup or a coat. Empathy is an understanding, but it's removed. Compassion is a walking toward. That's what David Kurlander taught me. He not only understood that I was hurting and what I needed, but he had the compassion to give his most precious resource, which is time. Mr. Sanders taught me the difference between a job and a calling. He taught me that if you're going to spend your life doing something, you do something that so moves you that you are drawn to be extraordinary, not because of what others are to you, but because of what you feel inside yourself. Those are the two lessons that I've tried to use to model my own professional career. Wow. That is 
One powerful story, my friend. You know, if we ended the podcast right here, uh, my listeners, whom I affectionately call storytellers, would have received enormous value. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I'm just curious about two things. Are you still in contact with David Curlander? I am. I'm still. He moved uh, a continent away, but we're still on contact, in contact through the miracle of social media, yes. And what does he do now? Uh, he's retired. He actually worked for Microsoft, and uh, he stepped back from that role, and he's involved in a number of projects. But uh, I think his primary project is just being a dad, which is a great project. Yeah, it sure is. It's a it's a calling in and of itself. And it now, what 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 happened to this young man who stabbed you? You know, not much. Um, he was suspended from school for a time. He was ordered to undergo psychiatric counseling. Um, but he also was from the same neighborhood that I was. He he was, um, you know, upper middle class. He had no record. He had a good home. And uh, it wasn't one of those things that was going to lead him to be uh, much to my resentment at the time or my parents' resentment. He wasn't going to be uh, sent away to do any jail time or any time in juvenile. Um, he got on with his life. And he is now in the Midwest. Every once in a while, his name pops up on Facebook as someone you should know, you know, like them. But, uh, which makes me laugh a little bit. But yeah, he's apparently he was none the worse for wear from the incident. It was isolated from him for him as well, I would suspect. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Now, when did you actually make the decision to become a lawyer? You know, I think that that when I was in college and I realized that um, what I liked to do was speak and write um, I took a look at my, um, you know, the different career options that I knew about, you know, having expanded my horizons a little bit in college. And I kept coming back to the fact that, well, look, at least I can be pre-law because pre-law casts a wide net and it had a lot of speaking and writing and I liked history and I liked politics. And um, I realized that I was going to graduate from uh, my undergrad with the degree that would not make it easy for me to get a job. You know, they're not hiring many historians out there. And there aren't many political scientists in captivity. So I um, figured I'd have to go to graduate school and so law school. It's, it, it just seemed like the path of least resistance. It wasn't a burning desire. It just seemed like that's where the river was taking me. So that's what I decided to do. That's interesting because what you were saying before about the lessons that you learned, it seems that you've incorporated that philosophy into your work as a lawyer about doing something, about turning it into a calling. Would you say that's correct? Yes, but it took me a long time, first of all, to realize, to understand what I was seeing, to understand those lessons and really uh, contemplate them. Mm. But the other part of it is, you know, I, I, like, I don't think I'm unique in this. I spent so much time thinking, well, okay, I'm a lawyer now. But if I just do this for a little while and I pay my mortgage and I pay my expenses, 
I'll have time to figure out what I really want to do. And then I'll go do that. But law is fine right now. Hmm. And I think, I think at some point I was waiting for a guy in a black and white striped shirt to blow a whistle and call time out and having everything around me freeze so that I would have time to figure out what I was meant to do while time stopped for everybody else. And the thing that I noticed was that guy in the white and black striped shirt, he never did come along and he never did blow a whistle. And time was going by and I didn't figure out what I was meant to do because I always thought that was something different than what I was doing. And then I realized, you know what? I don't have to wake up in the morning and automatically, magically be in the midst of my calling. I can use what I do day in and day out, and just gradually, I can sculpt it. I can take off a little bit here, and add a little bit here, and change direction a little bit over there, and move my career into my calling. It's not something I have to create out of whole cloth and just walk into. I can design it, and and I can shape what I'm doing so that it it comes to the destination I want. And so that's what I started to do. And that was a long time coming. That's beautiful. That really is. I mean, it, and it's in line with the theme of my show, because what you're doing is creating an empowering story that serves you and the people that you um, interact with. Yes. Now, exactly. you have, now, your book is a fascinating title, Fire, Aim, Ready Management. How did you develop this system and describe it to us well it's it's a start at the end approach so much like the theme of your show you you figure out what you want and then how to get there and i i apply that to very concrete situations in business so for example let's take the monday people call me every day and they ask me uh to draw up contracts for them and i can do that you know, and I, I know all the legal terms and I can analyze contracts that the other side is asking them to sign and I can tell people the risks. But I realize that, that doing that is just doing what's in front of you. But if you step back and look at a bigger picture, you might find you're missing something. So before I draft any contract or give my client advice on a contract they're being asked to sign, I'll look at the end and I'll say, okay, here are two questions. Number one. If you sign this contract, what would cause you to call me in six months asking me to get you the heck out of it? Tell me a story. What's the nightmare scenario if so-and-so didn't do this, if that happened, if this happened, whatever. So once they start telling these stories, I can say, okay, now I know what to protect you from. But let's do the second question, again, starting at the end. Tell me why you would call me in six months saying, Elliot, you know, signing this contract was the best thing I did in my professional career. What would make it a home run? It's not just I did my scope of work and I got paid. What would it be? Sometimes it's a referral here. I could use this on my website there. I got a testimonial for that. Or, well, you know, if they did this, that would be great in addition to whatever it was. Or if I could do 12 of these and whatever it happens to be. And I find most of the time that nobody ever has a conversation. You don't talk to your other side, the opposite party, 
on what would make this a home run for you. And you don't get a chance to hear what would make it a home run for them. Similarly, a lot of times you don't tell yourself the story. You don't focus on what's the nightmare scenario that would cause me to call my lawyer desperate to get out of this agreement. And so you don't properly evaluate the agreement and put in, you know, address the risks. So if you start at the end, best and worst, fire, and then you craft it, aim, and then you're ready. I'll give you one more example. In recruiting, everybody wants to bring rock star recruits to their company. But so, so let's imagine this. You are thinking about how you take your company to the proverbial next level. And you think that people are your greatest asset and all those cliches, so you, you want to hire your next rock star recruit. So imagine that not you, but one of your existing employees is sitting on a sofa, sitting on a couch, next to the perfect candidate, the person you would give your left kidney to have join your company. And that rock star recruit turns to your existing employer and says, why should I work for your company? What would you want your employee to say? And by that I mean, it has to be true. So what would you want the honest to God absolute 100% unvarnished truth that your employee would say to this rock star recruit that would attract her to come work for you. And so to, to know that you've got to have empathy. You've got to understand the feelings of your rock star recruit. You've got to understand what motivates them. And you've um, knowing that you have to reverse engineer your company in order to make that script not only possible, but inevitable. And that's an exercise in compassion. You've got to know that you're, you are exhibiting servant leadership. You're going to craft a company that is going to be incredible for this rock star recruit to work at, someplace that, that people like her would line up around the block to work at. And so to do that, you have to start at the end. You have to imagine that conversation. What would have to be true to get those people to clamor to work for you? And then you reverse engineer your company so that it becomes true. But you have to envision the end first. That's, that is wonderful. I mean, you're, are you familiar with Jim Rohn? Yes, yes I am. And of course, he always, his main, one of his, the principles he was fired up about was start with the end in mind. Yes, and Stephen Covey as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, even Covey. Absolutely. That that's wonderful. Now I imagine that now you you uh, you work with people um, as a consultant to help them turn their businesses around. Yes, I work with uh, small to mid-sized companies, and whether they're turning it around or whether they're just um, trying to build on what they've already developed, um, I work as consultants for companies all over the place. Yeah. Now, have you experienced in some instances that when you introduce this concept that the person has actually redesigned their business model and reshaped what their business is about? Well, yes, but it's over time. You don't yeah. have to, you don't have to, just like I was talking about sculpting, you don't have to burn it down and then build it back up again. You can just do one thing and then a second 
and then a third. It's kind of like, uh, if, you know, if you want to get in shape, it doesn't make sense to go from not working out to going to the gym the next day and spending six hours at the gym. You're not going to get in shape. You're just going to tear something. So maybe you go 20 minutes on the treadmill on Monday and then 20 minutes on Tuesday, 20 minutes on Wednesday. And then next month, maybe you're up to 25 and 30 and maybe you add in some weights. But you start building gradually. Um, in the business world, I keep using the analogy of sculpting. You can sculpt. You don't have to, to tear it down. You can sculpt. You can take off a little here, add a little there. So when you're talking about re-engineering your company and you think about this script, for example, to attract recruits, what are they most interested in? Add a little thing here. Get the input from your employees. Build on that. Take this away that they don't like. Move this that doesn't quite make sense over here. And gradually, yes, to answer to your question, I've seen companies transform them, transform themselves, but it's not overnight, and it doesn't have to be. Hmm. That, that's that, that's wisdom. That that is wonderful. Now, what are the biggest management mistakes that you see people make? Well, I see them um, try to be all things to all people. And, and so inside your four walls, um, I see CEOs who fail to understand or fail to acknowledge when somebody's not a fit. And, and I'll tell you, I've, I've done this myself. Um, I've had people who I like personally. And I realized that for whatever reason, they just weren't a fit. It didn't work in the team dynamic. The very valuable things they brought to the table were not valuable in my setting, but could have been somewhere else. And I kept working so hard to make it work here, and it just didn't. Um, and so I see a lot of people reproduce that mistake or, or something similar which is they fail to pull the trigger. They fail to get rid of people when they should. Um, but another thing that I see as a common management mistake is on the outside of your four walls. And that is people tend to believe that anyone holding a check is a good client or a good customer. You know, and they think to themselves, well, I can do this work, so I'll bring it in. And what they do is they fail to prune they fail to be discriminating and keep out people um, unless the people that they let in will allow them to do their highest and best work. So I finally, and it's, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, I finally was able to fire clients. And I remember very recently I fired a client and she said to me, why? I mean, we always pay you on time. And I said to her, I, I know. And that's, that's not the point. But I realized that what you need and, and the way I work, it's not compatible because I don't believe that I can give you my highest and best work. And that's not a failing on your part, and it's not a failing on my part. But if I don't feel I can do my highest and best work for you, then I'm shortchanging you whether you know it or not. You should go somewhere else. And by pruning it down so that the people that you're working with are only those that allow you to be your best, 
you're actually setting the stage for incredible growth. And a management mistake I see a lot of businesses make is they think, well, good enough is good enough, you know? He pays regularly and he has regular work and I don't love it. That's not really what I want to do, but okay. But the, the fact of the matter is that bad clients push out good clients. The time that you spend on a bad client, you overspend. And you tend to ignore the ones that are easy, that you like, et cetera, et cetera, because they don't take as much time. You know you can do that work. So instead of giving those good clients extra, you wind up shortchanging them in a little way because you're working so darn hard to make what's not a fit a fit. And I see that happen time and time again. I absolutely love what you just shared. And I was thinking about a profession that I also am in, in network marketing. Mm -hmm. And any network marketers listening to this can learn a very powerful lesson here about not chasing everyone with a pulse because <laughs> it's true. Not everyone with a pulse is going to be good for you you know, or your organization or your long-term growth. And that is really, really valuable stuff. Great. Thank you so much for that. Now, how can business owners start making better decisions? Well, I think that there are a number of ways. Uh, one is, I think that, that every business owner needs to have one or two people outside of his or her organization to talk with. And I don't mean to talk with as in your accountant or your lawyer or your banker or somebody with an agenda or even somebody on the clock, although there are some very good coaches um, out there. But somebody to talk with that can call you on things. And by that I mean um, you you, they'll know your excuses for what they are, their excuses, and they can hold you accountable. They can say, you know what? You say that, but that's not really the story, is it? You just don't want to do this. People who actually get to know you and can hold your feet to the fire, people who can have an adult conversation with you and talk to you about uncomfortable and difficult truths. Um, and so if you have a short list of those people, um, I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, a second way is I think that that um, you have to be able to have the insight to know when you're running low on fuel, when you when you need to sharpen your own saw, and that might be to learn something, to go outside of your comfort zone. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things I did several years ago, and I kept up with it, was I decided to take improv classes, improv comedy had nothing to do with my work as an attorney, or so I thought. But it was something that I thought would be fun. It introduced me to a whole new group of people that I wouldn't have met before. It gave me a whole new set of skills. And I came back from that refreshed. I looked forward to it. It was on Wednesday nights. So I looked forward to it. And I was refreshed. And I started attacking other things with, with more energy. Um, another thing I did... Um, is I decided, as I had mentioned, I really like public speaking. And I, I also like giving back. I like helping people. So I reached out and through this 
series of events, I became a, an adjunct professor where I teach public speaking at a local university called Towson University. Um, one night a week from 6.30 to 9.10. This is my now my fifth semester doing it. And I do it because I just, I love doing it. And I like working with the, the young men and women. I learn a lot from them. I keep current from them. I learn, I get a chance to practice whatever I'm working on and some work, some doesn't. And it's a way for me to sharpen the saw. It's a way for me to stay fresh and stay vital and stay connected. Um, I think the worst thing you can do is to be so insulated that you retire into yourself before your time. That's wonderful. And of course, the biggest takeaway there is to think about how you can do that by allowing yourself to get out of your comfort zone, to go into an area that's unknown to you and to develop new skills and to meet new people. You know, I don't know if you know this, Elliot, but um, I'm a professional actor and I've taught acting for many years. And one of my specialties was teaching improvisation. Oh, so, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. So when you said that, I just lit up. I said, wow, that is incredible. And I incorporated that into courses designed specifically for business people. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say would be one or two things that you got from improv that helped you in your law practice and in your everyday communication? Well, by far, I'll tell you, by far, the, um, the thing that has helped me the most is, and you'll know this, the law of improv. Yes, and. Um, you know, if you have um, a scene two people in the scene and somebody says, look over there, the volcano is about to erupt. And the other person says, I, I don't see it. Well, the scene dies. It just, there's nowhere to go there. But the second person should be saying, yes, and it's about to erupt and it's going, and the lava is going to hit the kids down there or whatever, however. And now you've got a lot of different ways to go. And, that's how an improv scene develops. You take the suggestion and you build on it. And in business, I see a lot, even in negotiating a contract, I'll see that somebody says, I really want this term. Now, if I say, I don't, I'm never signing a contract in which that term appears. Well, I guess we can see, you know, who wants it more or who has to back down, but it's not going to be a constructive relationship. But if I look at it and I say, okay, I see that you want that term. Here are my fears with the term. And instead of going yes, no, I can ask, I can ask you, you want that term. Tell me why. What is the thing that's really moving you? What is the value you're getting or what's your biggest fear if you don't have it? And I do this a lot, and a lot of times a person will say, oh, well, I think that if I don't have this term, then this will happen. And then I'll, I'll look at them and say, oh, I had no idea that was your fear. Well, geez, we can address that. Sure, I can promise that, that we'll never do that. Here's my reason why I don't want it. I don't want it because I'm afraid of this. And Oh, okay. Well, yeah, okay, well, we can work on that. So all of a sudden we've broken through this yes-no into a yes-and 
and we've been able to keep the dialogue going. And improv, if nothing else, is about the magic that can happen when you keep the dialogue going. You know what? You could have come in and subbed for one of my classes. <laughs> I'd love to come in and sub for one of your classes. I mean, it, it, you just hit it right on the head. Absolutely. It, it is. It's a magic when people get that basic lesson that don't resist the information that's given to you because it may be foreign to you or it seems difficult or whatever. Say yes to everything that's given to you and then go with it and see where it takes you. And you're right. That's how you build the scene. As a matter of fact, um, entire plays have been developed by companies, theater companies, working with that principle, improvising and seeing what kind of script comes out of it. That's just fantastic. I love it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrific. It, the lessons I took it because I thought it would be fun, and it was. I did not know that it would have such an applicability um, to business and communication and to everything that I try to do. Uh, and that's that's where the magic was. Oh yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, um, following this thread, I. Um, want to put together a course in improvisation for network marketers because network marketers often get stuck with a script in their head sure. and as a result they're not even hearing what the prospect is saying <laughs> that's right the, the person is talking and all they're hearing in their heads is um, when can I introduce my offer? When can I introduce my opportunity? But if they just really listened, the right thing to say would be triggered spontaneously. And it would connect authentically to what the person wants and needs. Yeah, you know, it's um, Jerry Seinfeld once said that men don't care about what's on TV. They only care about what else is on TV. <laughs> That's why they like the remote. And a lot of networking conversations about that. I don't care about what you're saying. I only care about what else we could be saying. And so you, you lose that ability to listen in the present because you're so worried about what else there may be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is great. That is absolutely wonderful. Now, what separates the success stories from the crash and burn stories? I think it's I think it's a, a measure of insight. I think it's a, a willingness to um, admit some vulnerability, to find people who can compensate for what you are, to realize that you don't have to have all the answers. I think it's a comfort with change, um, a curiosity about the world. I very very seldom do I believe that it's one more master's degree or a PhD here, or that somebody doesn't know enough about their own business. Um, and I really don't believe that it's a um, failure of policy very often. But I do think that it's an absence of mindfulness, of understanding the present, understanding your world, having a curiosity, surrounding yourself with, with people that, that lift you up, that are engaged, that are passionate, that have a calling. Um, that are worthy of emulation. Um, I think, I don't think, I think it's impossible to succeed if you're in a cocoon. And I think it is almost inevitable that you will succeed 
if you see an infinite number of possibilities. Mm. That is great. Uh, you just offered another million-dollar nugget there. Elliot, what drives you? In other words, what is your why, the thing that makes you jump out of bed in the morning and lights your fire? Well, I, I think I reconnected with it a little bit when I started teaching. Um, I love it when people call me to say, hey, let me bounce this off you. Or, well, let me, let me do what I do in my book. I'll cut to the end. What I love is when a conversation ends and somebody says to me, God, I feel so much better because I talked to you. I mean, to me, that's just incredible. If I, if I have a conversation like that, particularly if it's in my field of you know, business or somebody in a leadership position, and that's what they say to me, I drive home on a high. That's what I love. And so when I do my public speaking, when I, when I work with the kids at, at Towson University, and I get an email from a student that I had three semesters ago who says, hey, I just had this job interview and I was thinking of you because I did this. I, there's nothing better for me. That's what I love. Mm. Yeah, basically impacting lives and being um, an instrument of transformation in people's lives. Absolutely. Better said, yes. I love that. Now, if you could wave a magic wand and make one significant change in the world, what would it be? I think it would be a more universal understanding of the strategic employment of empathy and compassion. Because I think, as, as I talked about earlier, I think that so much, not only business failures, and there are a lot of them, but so many unfulfilled dreams, so much difficulty in the world arises because of, a, of an absence of basic empathy that we don't, we don't have the ability. It's not a callousness. It's just that we don't have the ability to feel what somebody else may be feeling. And um, the compassion is a force of will. The compassion is knowing there's a void to be willing to step into it. You know, I saw the, the, film that was nominated for an Academy Award, maybe several of them, called Hidden Figures. Um, and it was about African-American women and the contributions they made at NASA. And it was a marvelous film. I just loved it. But what was striking to me, it was about a, an era in the United States not that didn't predate me by very much, where they had you know segregated water fountains and, and lunch counters and you know, people, had, blacks have to ride in the back of the bus and all that stuff. It was, in other words, it was an era of such accepted and callous indifference to other human beings. It was almost as if the majority population didn't even perceive um, the African-Americans, the black population, as being human. You know, they were like almost human, but not really. Because if you perceive them as being equals then what possible justification could there be for making them ride at the back of the bus or not sitting with them side by side at a lunch counter or drinking out of the same water fountain or going to the same restroom? What, how would you do that? And so I was just so saddened by that kind of pervasive and callous indifference. And it still goes on. It's just that that put it into stark highlight. 
then I think, you know, if there were universal empathy and the force of will that is compassion, I think the world, at least small corners of it and building on that, would be such a, a wonderful place. So that's I, my magic wand. I totally agree with you, you know, and I saw that movie and I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, taking it a step further, I believe that if everyone... Uh, put themselves into that or made that decision to exercise empathy, to develop it, that actually we wouldn't even have to rely as much on government leaders yeah. to make to make the world a better place because we would make it a better place. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. Um, but uh, right, so you saw the movie. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It was. It was uplifting, but the backdrop against which it occurred was just, it was soul-crushing in a way just to, to see the indifference with which people treated other people. Yeah, exactly. And those three women were so powerfully influential in the success of NASA. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now, do you like to go to the theater? I do. I really love the stories. Yeah, absolutely. I just got back from New York City uh, yesterday morning, and one of the shows that I saw is actually a Canadian piece called Come From Away. Do you know it? I don't, no. I love seeing shows in New York, but I, I don't know that one. The reason I'm telling you this, it's directly related to what you just talked about. It's based on a true event uh, during 9-11, when they had to ground airplanes, they wouldn't allow them to fly for a while. Right, I remember that. 38 airplanes were forced to land in a small town in Newfoundland, Canada, called Gander. The entire population was only 7,000 people, and now 7,000 new people arrived in these planes, and the people of Gander opened their homes to them, took them in, and basically became their supporters and best friends for about four or five days or more. And lives were permanently changed because of it. And it's it's just an amazing story. And, and to top it off, it's a musical. Well, so it's come from away. Yeah. And the, the reason it's entitled that in Newfoundland, that's an expression they use that if you're not from Newfoundland, you are from away. <laughs> got it. Okay. So keep uh, you know if you get to New York, I would definitely go see it, my friend. You'll love yeah, it. I Absolutely love it. Now, can you name three top items on your bucket list, Elliot? Three top items on my bucket list. I want to give a TED talk. Um, I'd like to see both of my sons married to wonderful people. And I would like to take my wife to Australia. Fantastic. Those are three beautiful things. And I have a feeling, given who you are, that you're going to make them all happen. What is your favorite book or books? Well, um, one of my favorite business books is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. It's the discipline art of less. And it's like we were talking about, not not uh, thinking of everybody, the whole world is a client or the whole, or everything is a priority. 
but really honing in on what you would like to do. Um, and I, I just love that. So that's in business. I also loved uh, the book. It was turned into a movie called Life of Pi. Uh, Life of Pi was about an improbable life. And one of the quotes from Life of Pi was to accept doubt as a philosophy of life is to choose immobility as a mode of transportation. That is powerful. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is to choose immobility as a mode of transportation. Powerful and profound. I just really loved that. I thought the message was incredible. The, the, in the movie was, was terrific. The writing was wonderful. Um, so those are my two, Essentialism and Life of Pi. Fantastic. Do you have a favorite quote? Um, see, I should have waited for your question because I just gave you the Life of Pi quote, um, which is, you know, I, I really like that. And so married to that is a quote by uh, Joseph Goldstein, who is a... Um, a teacher, a meditation teacher, among other, and an author. Um, and he says that, that the thing about doubt that makes it so seductive is that it comes to us disguised as the voice of wisdom. Um, so when you constantly hear, oh, you can't do that, uh, you're not good enough for that, uh, those things aren't meant for you, um, they won't like you, you know, that's doubt. Now, sometimes it's healthy and you can listen to it and you can work your way through it, but if it's just pervasive, it's so seductive because it sounds like it's wisdom. It sounds, oh, you're right, the wiser course is not to try because I'll never make it. They won't like me. Um, I don't have his ability or her ability. Uh, you're right, I'm, I'm, it's better for me, it's safer for me to settle because I'll never achieve what I want. That's doubt, and it sounds so much like the voice of wisdom. Mm. And, and it was Joseph Goldstein, you said? Yes, yes. I love that. I love that. That is really good. Thank you so much for that. That's another one worth repeating. The thing about doubt that makes it so seductive is that it comes to us disguised as the voice of wisdom. Mm -mm. Where do you see yourself in five years, Elliot? I see myself farther along on a path that I've carved out, which is speaking and spending more of my time speaking and writing. Uh, I want to have be on a larger circuit. I want to speak nationally and maybe internationally um, and spread the messages that some of which we've shared today. That's what I really want to do. And who are your ideal clients? My ideal clients are those who are, who have a light behind their eyes. You know, they're the ones that really love what they do and the possibilities they bring to the world. Um, they're curious, they're open, they're insightful, they're coachable. Um, they want to be better leaders and they want to make those around them better. It doesn't matter whether they, you know, whether they work in the oil fields or sell tangerines. So in other words, they're not everyone with a pulse. <laughs> no, they're, not. they're not everyone with a pulse. I love that. How can people contact you, Elliot? Uh, they can reach me at um, wagonheim.com, which is W-A-G-O-N-H-E-I-M.com. They can reach out to see the book at Farsighted, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T-E-D, farsightedbooks.com. 
and I always respond to their emails and contact information on phone. Farsightedbooks.com. That's it. And wagonheim.com. Right. Any final thoughts, Elliot, that you would like to leave our listeners with? I think that the final thought is what I what I try to impress on on my students from the very first time that, that I see them. And that is that they do have a voice. They have a right to be there. They have something amazing to contribute. You know, the, I'm going to butcher it, but Walt Whitman wrote, you know, the, the wonderful play goes on and you, you may contribute a verse. I mean, to know that you may contribute a verse, why would anybody shy away from it? Hmm. Hmm. That is beautiful. You know, I can't thank you enough. You've, you've offered so much richness here, so much value. And uh, I trust that people will not only listen to this again, but that they will reach out to you and, um, you know, uh, allow you to be an instrument in their growth. Thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you and to your audience. I really enjoyed it. And so did I. Okay, storytellers, thank you once again for sharing these moments of richness with us. Remember to share it with others. Pay it forward. Let people know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, at the website, you all have a free gift waiting for you, a transformational ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. We spoke a lot today about wonderful and enriching books. Remember that the sponsor for this show is Audible and that they're offering you a free download of an, any audio book of your choice from 180,000 titles as well as one month free trial of their entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Your contributions to this show are very important. Keep your comments coming to lewis at changeyourstorypodcast.com. That's L-O-U-I-S at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Elliot spoke about a very intriguing idea in this podcast today. Think about this during the the coming week. What is the secret ingredient in you that when you tap it and allow it, it will draw you toward an extraordinary life? To begin that discovery, ask this question. How can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.